I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's President and CEO, and I am really delighted to welcome all of you this morning to our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, I want to make sure that any of you who has not seen our two featured exhibitions on view right now uh, makes, the, makes the time to see them. They are both um, really interesting and intriguing, provocative, and important uh, narratives of American history. One on this first level, Chinese uh, American exclusion inclusion tells the um, long, very long and um, very complex uh, history of Chinese in America beginning with the birth of this nation and ending with the present time. On our second floor, we have a um, really uh, quite moving exhibition of photographs taken by Stephen Summerstein who was a 24-year-old City College student in 1965 and hopped on a bus to Selma, Alabama with five cameras slung over his back. So make sure to see those exhibitions if you haven't seen them already. Today's program, Gay Rights and the Supreme Court, is a part of the Bonnie and Rick Reese Lecture in Constitutional History and Law. And I am really thrilled to thank the Reeses, um, represented today by Dr. Michael Schmerin, who says, don't ask him to get up because he's not Rick Reese, but um, they've asked uh, Dr. Schmerin to, to uh, represent them this morning. And um, I do want to underscore our gratitude to the Reeses for supporting this series. I'd also like to thank all of the Chairman's Council members in our audience today for the great support they give our institution, which makes it possible for us to do so much work here. Today's program will last an hour and a half, and it will include a question and answer session. Um, as always, we'll ask you to line up behind standing microphones in the left and right aisles. We do that so that everyone can hear your question, and so that those uh, listening to our podcasts can also hear your question. Um, following the program, there will be books by our speakers available in our museum store. However, there will not be a book signing this morning. We are thrilled to welcome back to the New York Historical Society, Linda Greenhouse. Um, Linda Greenhouse is, uh, is the Knight uh, Distinguished Journalist and Professor in Residence um, and Joseph Goldstein Lecturer in law at Yale Law School, a position she assumed in January 2009 following a 40-year career at the New York Times. During her time at the, as the Times Supreme Court correspondent, she received several major journalism awards, including the Pulitzer Prize and the Goldsmith Career Award for Excellence in Journalism from Harvard University's Kennedy School. Professor Greenhouse currently writes an online column about law for the Times opinion section and she's also written several books, including her most recent, entitled The U.S. Supreme Court, A Very Short Introduction. We are also very pleased to welcome back Robert Post, who is Dean and Saul and William Goldman Professor of Law at the Yale Law School. As a law professor, his subject areas are constitutional law, First Amendment, legal history, and equal protection. Professor Post is a member of the American Philosophical Society and the American Law Institute, as well as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a former member of the Board of Directors of the American Constitution Society. Professor Post has also written and edited numerous books and publishes regularly in legal journals and other publications. His most recent book is 
Citizens Divided, A Constitutional Theory of Campaign Finance Reform. Also joining us again for this morning's program is Kenji Yoshino, the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU School of Law. Before his current position, Professor Yoshino taught at Yale Law School for a decade, where he served as Deputy Dean and the inaugural Guido Calabresi Professor of Law. He's published broadly in scholarly journals, as well as in more popular venues, such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Slight. Professor Yoshino also acts as a frequent contributor to NPR, CNN, and MSNBC, and he's also written several books. His newest book will be released this April. It is entitled, Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial. Uh, as always, I ask that before we begin, you make sure that your cell phones and anything else that makes a noise is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming our guest to the stage. Thanks, Louise. Very good for all of us to be back here. So how many people were here last night watching the film? And how many have ever seen Philadelphia? Okay, so you don't need too much grounding um, in the film. We were, we're not going to actually talk directly about the film, but we're going to talk about some of the issues the film raises and where we are today in the law uh, of gay rights at the doorstep of the Supreme Court. So speaking of the Supreme Court, as I'm sure everybody here knows, uh, back in 1986, the court had a chance to declare um, constitutional right to be gay in America. Uh, and the court was asked to strike down the criminal sodomy law in the state of Georgia, uh, a very common law at that time. The court declined to do so, as, as we all know, and that was the law until 2003 when Bowers was directly overturned by the Supreme Court in Lawrence against Texas. But for our purposes, uh, playing off of the film last night, I just thought I would read a sentence that <clears throat> Michael Bowers, the Attorney General of Georgia, defending the sodomy law, included in his brief to the Supreme Court uh, when the case was argued in the spring of 1986. Mr. Bowers uh, gave a description of gay sex, which he said often, quote, often involves multiple partners and takes place in parks and bars and bathhouses. And he said, quote, the legislature should be permitted to draw conclusions concerning the relationship of homosexual sodomy in the transmission of AIDS and other diseases, unquote. So anchoring the constitutional argument directly in the context of the AIDS panic of that time, the mid-80s, the film last night was set in 1988. <clears throat> so this was a very difficult argument for uh, the plaintiff's lawyer, the respondent's lawyer, uh, Professor Larry Tribe of Harvard to confront, and he didn't do it with all that much grace. Um, in his brief that responded to this, he said, well, certainly uh, it's not really very efficacious to make this conduct a crime and make people afraid to go to the doctor uh, because of their fear if they went to the doctor and revealed themselves, they'd be arrested. So we know how the court responds to that, <coughs> to the general um, 
atmosphere that was created by this kind of argument in Bowers Against Hardwick. Very interestingly, um, <clears throat> a few days ago, uh, Michael Bowers, the former Attorney General of Georgia, now a 73-year-old uh, lawyer, maybe retired lawyer, I'm not sure, um, gave an interview uh, in which he basically um, expressed his current view of the matter. He said uh, that his own views have, quote, changed as society has changed. He said, I want people to be left alone. I genuinely believe that everybody, all people, need someone to love and be loved by. So I offer these two versions of uh, Michael Bowers, thoughtful man, because I think it's a trajectory that uh, society has traveled. Um, so less than two years ago, the court decided a case called the United States against Windsor, which struck down on constitutional grounds the Defense of Marriage Act in which the federal government refused to recognize or give any benefits to uh, couples, same-sex couples who were married in states in which same-sex marriage was available. And as you probably know, Justice Scalia wrote a very vigorous, uh, characteristically vigorous uh, dissenting opinion. I'll just read a couple sentences from that. Because of course the court, the court in Windsor, the Doma case, um, ostensibly said Justice Kennedy's opinion, they're dealing only with DOMA, with the obligation of the federal government to recognize marriage in states that had chosen to recognize marriage, not saying anything about the constitutional right to same-sex marriage per se, Justice Scalia said. It takes real cheek for today's majority to assure us as it is going out the door that a constitutional requirement to give formal recognition to same-sex marriage is not at issue here. No one should be fooled. It is just a matter of listening and waiting for the other shoe. So the number of shoes that have dropped in the <laughs> less than two years since Windsor, June 26, 2013, is really astonishing. Something like 40 lower court judges in hearing same-sex marriage cases in courts all around the country, coast to coast, except in the Northeast where same-sex marriage had been legalized in many states, including New York, by legislative action. But in those states where the matter ended up in court, cited Justice Scalia's dissenting opinion, saying, you know, Justice Scalia, the dissenter, said it's a done deal. It's over. The argument is over. It, really? Uh, it's probably one of the most powerful. I mean, a lot of dissents sort of society catches up with them over time, over decades, or, you know, the Japanese exclusion cases, or. Dred Scott or something like this. But here within uh, basically 12 months, uh, society is caught up with Justice Scalia's uh, dissenting opinion. So a, uh, a number of the federal appeals courts uh, in the Southeast, in the West, in the Midwest, uh, ruled on the question and found that the Constitution did with, by various kinds of analysis. Uh, <clears throat> basic equal protection analysis, um, did convey a right to same-sex marriage. And appeal, state appeals from these decisions reached the Supreme Court uh, early in the current term. So the question was, was the court going to jump into this? In the absence of the usual marker for a case that the Supreme Court deems worthy or necessary uh, for its attention, and that is a case which on, cases, appeals on issues in which lower courts were divided. There was no division 
at the time last spring, and in fact, just uh, last fall, and in fact, Justice Ginsburg said in advance of the court having said anything, well, uh, there is no conflict in the federal circuits, and uh, we'll wait and see. Maybe the Sixth Circuit will create a, a conflict. The Sixth Circuit is the upper Midwest, and there was at that time a case pending uh, that combined uh, cases from uh, Michigan, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Ohio. Well, the court denied cert, denied review uh, in those cases back in the fall. People were quite surprised, although if people had taken Justice Ginsburg at her word, they would not have been surprised. And lo and behold, uh, rather shortly after that, uh, the Sixth Circuit, in a two-to-one opinion, uh, the majority opinion written by Judge Jeffrey Sutton, who's a star of the, on the conservative side in the federal judiciary, um, <coughs> wrote an opinion. Um, it was in its um, uh, construction rather strained, I would say, and said basically, uh, we don't have jurisdiction to decide this issue because the Supreme Court uh, <coughs> back in the 1970s had looked at a case and said they found no federal question presented by the claim for same-sex marriage, and that's, and that's it. Uh, only the Supreme Court can take another look and overturn that opinion. So the court rather promptly uh, did grant cert, did grant review in the Sixth Circuit case from the, these four states. The briefs are just coming in now, and the case will be argued. Uh, the court hasn't set a date yet. Uh, <clears throat> sometime in late April, and presumably will be decided in late June, maybe even on the second anniversary of uh, United States against Windsor. So I'm going to leave that little um, constitutional lesson uh, there, but invite uh, my fellow panelists to jump in and then to, and then to pick up the conversation. And if people have further questions about any of this, um, we'll save half an hour at the end. And we hope you'll favor us with your questions. Wonderful. I'm going to just begin with a little riff off of what Linda has said and then go to what kinds of substantive arguments are going to be presented to the court when the arguments occur in late April. So I always have a very optimistic view about the law. Whenever I teach my classes, I always wear a suit. And one of my colleagues <laughs> said to me, why do you do that? And I said, I still think that the law is an honorable profession. <laughs> and he had exactly that reaction. That you and he said, why do you think that? Your graduates are just going to go help corporations beat the crap out of each other. And I said, well, just think about my own life. Uh, I was born the year of Stonewall. Uh, Same-sex sodomy was <coughs> criminalized throughout the land at the time. By the time I came out and started having romantic relationships, sodomy laws were on their way out, uh, finally to be abolished in uh, 2003. Uh, when my husband and I wanted to get married uh, in uh, 1999, we were able to do that in Connecticut, one of the few jurisdictions that at the time permitted it. When we decided that we wanted to have children, surrogacy laws and adoption laws in the country had changed sufficiently such that we could have children and we've welcomed since a daughter and a son into the world. And so my life is a life that law has made possible. Obviously, many other changes had to occur, like Philadelphia, like Will and Grace, like Brokeback Mountain, in order to change the zeitgeist. But without concrete, hard legal reform, none of those changes, none of those transformations would have been possible in my own life. And so that's why I wear a suit. So that shut him up pretty quickly. <laughs> 
With that said, uh, let me just turn to the uh, cases that we're going to be uh, uh, watching um, being argued before the Supreme Court. And I want to do this kind of at two levels. One is at the level of law, and is at the other is at the level of facts. So just fairly briefly, this is not really uh, rocket science. Uh, the Supreme Court granted uh, two different questions. And one question was, do states have to issue marriage licenses under the requirements of the 14th Amendment, which is a home of the equality and liberty principles of the Constitution, to same-sex couples? And then the other question, which we only get to if the answer to the first question is no, is even if states don't have to issue licenses, do they have to recognize licenses that have been badly given to same-sex couples in jurisdictions that recognize same-sex marriage? And so those are the two questions. And then the first one is really the money question. And it breaks down into, as I said, the liberty question and the equality question. And the liberty question goes something like this. We have this very well-established freedom to marry in this country through a series of cases involving prisoners' rights to marry, obviously the interracial marriage case in 1967, Loving versus Virginia, the prisoner cases Turner versus Safley in 1987, so rock solid that there is a right to marry. The plaintiffs are arguing all we ask for is to be included in this right to marry. And then the other side is countering, well, what are you talking about? You're actually asking for a new right, the right to same-sex marriage. And that kind of right is only recognized if it's deeply rooted in the nation's traditions and history. And of course, you can't argue that. The plaintiffs respond, you're right, we couldn't argue that, so we concede that. But that's not what we're arguing. We're not asking for the establishment of a new right. We are asking for access to an old right. So that when interracial couples said, we want to be included in the right to marry, or when prisoners said, we want to be included in the right to marry, they did not argue for the right to interracial marriage. They did not argue for the separate right of prisoner marriage. They argued for the right to marry and for access to that fundamental right. And so that is what the plaintiffs are arguing in response to these claims. So how this will be resolved you know, by the court is, I think, a very tricky issue. I would say that back at the time of Windsor, it would have been a much harder call because, of course, if there's a right to marry in one state, you have a right in all 50 states. And so that would immediately mean that there would be a national right to same-sex marriage. So, at this point, where we have 37 states that have same-sex marriage, it's a lot less tricky to wash out the outliers and say the 13 states have to go the way the rest of the country has gone than it would have been even two years ago for the reasons that Linda described. Well, in fact, it would be very tricky to effectively undo or, or what would happen to the tens of thousands of same-sex families in which children are being raised. And Justice Kennedy, in his uh, majority opinion in Windsor, was uh, spent a, a good deal of, uh, quite a few pages, talking about the impact of this question on children. Uh, Judge Richard Posner, who decided the Seventh Circuit case in favor of same-sex marriage, talked a great deal about children. So the landscape has changed uh, in a very fundamental way that puts a huge uh, uh, mountain in the way of judges who would seek to effectively now change what's become the status quo. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. 
but I also don't want to sound too bullish or too optimistic in the sense that what could happen, right, in a doomsday scenario is that there could be a, you know, 5-4 decision that says that this is up to the states, and then the states would react. So certainly, you know, we don't expect California to pass Prop 8 again, but Utah could pass a version of Prop 8 again if there isn't a fundamental constitutional right. And I think that the way they would resolve the concern about the people who had already gotten married is a way in which those marriages were treated under Prop 8, which is to say you're grandparented in. So those 18,000 marriages that were conducted when marriages were uh, valid before Prop 8 uh, denied same-sex couples the right to marry going forward are still valid, but in the future, people cannot get married. I agree with you that it would just create a crazy quilt that ultimately would be unsustainable. But you know, I, don't, I didn't hear to be, say, to be saying this, but I want to be really clear that it's too soon for the victory lap yet. Right? Well, and of course, uh, what's going on in Alabama uh, with Judge Roy Moore, you, I'm sure you've read about it, I mean, uh, shows us that um, not every part of the country is going to go down easily with this. Exactly. And I think Robert, we're, I'm going to let Robert talk about backlash. But before I, I, I do that, let me just really quickly say the other constitutional argument that's being made is the equal protection argument. And the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment says that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And generally, it has been seen to apply to five classifications race, sex, national origin. Uh, non-marital parentage, formerly known as illegitimacy, and alienage. Right? So you notice that sexual orientation is not on that list, but sex is. So one question is, do we argue this as a sex discrimination case, saying that if a man is allowed to marry a woman, but a woman is not allowed to marry a woman, is that sex discrimination? This argument had kind of died down as the gay rights movement gained force, because the gay rights movement wanted to argue on its own terms, and perhaps be included within the pantheon of so-called heightened scrutiny or protected classifications on its own right. The court has never explicitly said that sexual orientation is not within the pantheon of five heightened scrutiny classifications. But last oral argument in the Hollingsworth case, Justice Kennedy said, could there be a sex discrimination argument here? And that was kind of a shot across the bow for all the people who around the country who were very interested in the sex discrimination argument. And in fact, a Ninth Circuit concurrence by uh, Judge Marsha Burzon uh, made the sex discrimination argument in a very powerful way that might revive it. So watch that space. If we don't go the sexual, uh, sex discrimination route, we could go the sexual orientation route, saying that whether or not you grant height, sexual orientation heightened scrutiny, there still has to be a colorable rationale on the other side. There has to be some conceivable, at least hypothetical rationale on the other side, and you have not produced that. So the arguments that the other side has produced is, originally, this is bad for children. Right? All the empirical evidence seems to suggest otherwise. This is also sort of really uh, over-inclusive as a rationale, as I like to say. Lawyers of higher rates of depression and suicide than the general population, but lawyers are still permitted to get married. <laughs> and lawyers are even permitted to get married to other lawyers. <laughs> so actually, after a certain point, and this goes, Linda, I think, to your point in a beautiful way, the protect our children meme that was so powerful in the Prop 8 campaign and campaigns around the country for bans on same-sex marriage. I keep saying Prop 8. That's, as you know, the California ban. Some of you may not know. The California ban 
on same-sex marriage. Which is Kenji's very fine book, which I've had the privilege of reading, is all about. Right, thank you. Um, but uh, Linda, that's uh, a gift to an author. Uh, but uh, the, the meme of Protect Our Children has undergone what um, Robert and Linda's colleague, uh, Jack Balkan, calls ideological drift, where an idea from one side of the ideological spectrum has drifted to the other side. So think about colorblindness. Colorblindness used to be what the left, the progressive side, was saying. Right? It's now drifted over to be the primary argument against affirmative action. So it's the favorite of the right. So that's ideological drift from left to right. Protect our children is ideological drift from right to left. Originally, protect our children was a dog whistle that the Prop 8 campaigners blew in order to sound the alarm to people who still thought, a la the movie some of you saw last night, that gay people were child molesters, that gay people were promiscuous, et cetera, et cetera, that they were a threat to children. It goes now, back to Anita Bryant. Exactly, the 1970s Anita Bryant you know. campaign. Right? Um, and now it's drifted to the left, where protect our children is a primary meme for same-sex marriage, because the idea that, uh, going back to what Linda was saying about Justice Kennedy, he said during oral argument, 40,000 children are being raised by same-sex couples. So don't we want those children to have the protections of marriage, right, such that their parents can protect them by marrying each other? And isn't it unjust not to hear what he called the voice of those children? The final thing I want to say before handing it over to Robert is that in this book, I focused a lot on the trial in the Prop 8 case. And I didn't have a prior view about trials. Uh, before I came into this. I'm a constitutional law professor, so we come in at the kind of nosebleed level of abstraction, like we just read Supreme Court cases as they come to the court. Um, I thought that this transcript might be worth reading after I read John, Judge Von Walker's 136-page opinion in the case uh, where he made heavily reliance on the 12-day trial and the transcript thereof. And so I asked my librarian to pull me the 3,000-page transcript. And I had this experience that I know everyone in this audience, because we're on the Upper West Side, has had, which is just a falling into a text and not resurfacing until I flipped the last page. You know, I think it's the kind of experience of being a reader and perhaps the experience that defines us as readers, which is that you're just so immersed in the text that you just cannot look up or sideways until you have finished the last page. And so you go through your everyday activities just planning your time until you can get back to the transcript. And the reason that it was so moving to me was because it was the best, most rigorous conversation that we've ever had about same-sex marriage in our nation. And it far surpassed any legislative debate, any academic debate. That's a shame on us you know, for not being able to do that in the academy. Uh, certainly any media debate. And the point is that even in an academic debate where you would think of you know, the academic debate as being the platonic ideal of discourse, you can always, as a smart person, on either side of the debate, run out the clock or pivot away from the question. But if you are under oath on the stand for open-ended periods of time and someone is cross-examining you, particularly if that someone is David Boyce, you're in trouble, right? Uh, if you're not willing to tell the truth. And so gradually, never perfectly, but gradually the truth starts to get pushed up to the surface. And I would highly, highly recommend a perusal of that transcript if you 
have an open mind on the subject, or if you uh, want your convictions bolstered about what the facts on the ground prove about this. And the last thing I'll say to tie it to the film yesterday was that Philadelphia actually figures in the trial. So this is a strange phenomenon where the case that, you know, the movie Philadelphia is about a case, but the movie Philadelphia actually figures in a case, right, about same-sex marriage. And the way in which it figures is very unusual. So um, one of the prongs that you have to prove in order to get heightened scrutiny, the special protection I was talking about under the Equal Protection Clause, is that you have to show that the group has suffered a history of discrimination. It's very hard for the proponents, the effective defendants in that case, to prove that gays had not suffered a history of discrimination, particularly when faced with the nation's preeminent historian of gay rights, George Chauncey, at Yale. So they did something very clever, which was that they used a kind of legal jujitsu on Chauncey, where they said, we're basically going to concede this history of discrimination, but we're going to use all of your historical expertise in order to show how much progress gays have made. So at one point, David Thompson, the lawyer for the other side, is cross-examining uh, George Chauncey, and he says, well, when you were initially starting your career, you were told that doing gay rights was career suicide. Now you've been welcomed back to Yale as a tenured professor precisely on the basis of the same work. Doesn't that uh, signify a change in zeitgeist, in fact, a sea change? And Chauncey says, I would hardly take Yale as a bellwether for the nation. <laughs> and Thompson, either because he has, I researched this, he has two Harvard degrees, or uh, because he is a man of the people, said, Thank heavens, right? And that goes on the transcript. <laughs> Later on, the same colloquy, during the same cross-examination, David Thompson says, weren't there, you've talked a lot about censorship and the Hayes Code and how there was all this censorship of gay material. Didn't that go away in the 1960s? And in fact, in 1993, wasn't there this fantastic movie about AIDS called Philadelphia? And Chauncey said, yes. Wasn't it a blockbuster? Yes. Wasn't it critically acclaimed? Yes. Similarly, wasn't Brokeback Mountain, his one other example, a critical success? Yes. Wasn't it also a blockbuster? Yes. So, you know, what do you make of the fact that you're saying that gays and lesbians have this history of discrimination, but we have all these blockbusters? Chauncey's answer was, I'm just surprised that more movies like this have not been made, and so that still seems to uh, betoken some resistance. Engaging in a little bit of Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, my... Uh, I, I wish he would have said, have you noticed that the protagonists in both of those movies die at the end of their movies, <laughs> tragically? So I would hardly take the fact that these movies are in the popular zeitgeist to be emblematic in any simple way of gay political power. And with that, you know, there is no simple progress narrative here. I want to turn it over to Robert for But, but before you do... Um and you're all going to read Kenji's book, Speak Now, when it comes out in April. But can you just um, make a reference to that pivotal point in the trial where Judge Walker asked Chuck Cooper, the, another lawyer for the other side, uh, to identify the harm that will come from same-sex marriage? Because that really was a key moment, I think. Oh, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, so this is during the summary judgment hearing. You really um, kind of can't make this up. So. Uh, Summary judgment hearing, um, and um, so this is pre-trial, and um, Chuck Cooper, who is the very able Washington insider attorney for the other side, he is 
a gentleman. He is um, a son of the South, the uh, editor-in-chief of the University of Alabama Law Review, clerk for uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist and uh, Judge Justice Rehnquist, um, is a very uh, genteel man. You would like him if you met him. Uh, I had the privilege of spending half a day with him, interviewing him for this book. But during the, inter um, during the summary judgment hearing, um, Judge Walker says to him, um, what harm would come if uh, same-sex couples were permitted to get married? And um, Cooper responds by saying, uh, I don't think that's the relevant question. We are not required to show harm under the rational basis standard. All we have to show is that we have a reason for including certain people, not a reason for excluding other people. Which is a fine lawyerly answer, but Judge Walker has been 20 years on the bench now, and he was very used to cutting through the noise, so he said, you didn't answer my question. So he was like, that's a great answer. You know, I've given you an assumption earlier on, which is that only rational basis applies. I want you to give me one, which is to say, assume that some higher level of scrutiny applies, and you have to give an answer about harm. Just give me that one assumption. What harm would come from allowing same-sex couples to get married? And Cooper's response after a long pause was, I don't know, period. And he said later on during closing arguments that whatever the answer question that the judge would ask him, you know, he had an answer because he had heard those three words, I don't know, maybe it's four words, depending on how you treat contractions. But he heard that sentence, let's say, that brief sentence repeated back to him more than any other words that he had uttered in his entire life. Because the other side, Ted Olson, David Boyes, made a huge amount of hay with this, and this was everywhere where the attorney said, I don't know. When I interviewed him down in his mansion in Florida, I said, what do you have to say about I don't know? And he said those words were torn completely out of context. And I said, well, tell me, give me the context. And he said, I didn't mean I personally didn't know. I meant we as a society don't know because same-sex marriage is so young. And so if you jump down that transcript, you'll say, see later on that says this experiment is too young and society doesn't know whether or not uh, the effects of same-sex marriage is going to be um, what, what, what those are going to be. <coughs> Uh, and so I brought that back uh, to Judge Walker, who's now retired, so he can talk about this case. And I said, what do you think of that answer? And Judge Walker said, um, well, if he thought that, why didn't he say so, first of all? And then he said, second of all, you know, is some speculative harm to society in the future enough when I have to decide this case now? So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the suit that Kenji is wearing, which is about the law. You know, all of this sounds wonderful. You have a law. The law embodies our ideals, and uh, it makes us the kind of society we want to be. So there is this uh, way in which, when we talk about the kind of cases that Linda is uh, so elegantly setting before you, and the kind of trials that uh, Kenji is describing, and the law which embodies our values, we kind of think, well, what's the right thing to do? We pass a law, and then it happens. But actually, the world doesn't work like that. I mean, most of you probably uh, don't remember prohibition. Right? 
Prohibition is a law that's passed out of World War I to foster efficiency, to keep families together, to keep working fathers from drinking away the pay so that the kids, it's a great idealistic movement in the United States. They pass a law, and uh, 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 within two years after the end of the war, people are saying, what is this law? Why should I obey this law? If you look at every state that's now a red state, it was dry in the 1920s. Every state that's now a blue state, like New York, completely wet, and the law gets, uh, falls into the contempt of just about everybody. Prohibition, you've all seen the untouchables. So there is an issue, which is, how do you get the law to change behavior? When is it that you have an alignment between what the law requires, say, same-sex marriage or toleration, and how people actually behave? So in the movie that you saw, um, many of you saw last night, um, as I was watching it, I realized that the pivotal uh, moment in that movie was when Denzel Washington is with um, Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks is playing this opera solo by Maria Callas. And in the, in, uh, the opera, um, it's about love coming down from the heavens and being personified, the love that makes it possible to tolerate this life. And Denzel Washington is looking um, at Tom Hanks, feeling this love, and he comes for the first time to uh, see his interiority, to see his subjectivity, to identify with him, and then what the movie shows is Denzel Washington goes home and he hugs his baby daughter and he hugs his wife all to the background of the same Maria Callas solo. And what that's telling you cinemagraphically is the, the sense of love being at the heart of what human relationships are and the love that Tom Hanks is feeling is the same love that he, Denzel Washington, feels for his child and for his wife, suddenly that's the basis for an identification. And that is what brings to life the kind of law that is very formal in the courtroom, the law in which, in the formal setting of the trial last night, um, uh, the judge says, in this courtroom, we don't see sexual orientation, we don't see race, we don't see ethnicity. We don't see the five categories that Kenji was talking about. And Denzel Washington says, yeah, but judge, we don't live in this courtroom. And of course, that's the point, how you make these two match. And the movie made them match by having the character see what I have in common with Tom Hanks is this love which makes my life meaningful. And to understand what's happening with the legal changes that surround sexual orientation, I think you need to see what that movie was putting on the table, why we as a society are prepared to see that as what we have in common. This is probably the most rapid, profound social transformation most of us will witness in our lifetime, from going from pariah status to um, completely within the mainstream within 20 years. That, that is astonishingly fast as human time goes, as customs change. Why are we as a society prepared to do that? And to understand that, you, don't, you can't understand that by simply looking at decisions of the Supreme Court or laws about anti-discrimination. You have to look at why people are prepared to inhabit those laws, inhabit them in the way in which they think of them as right or as just or as expressing values that they themselves have. So that's the problem if you're going to look at what you see happening now 
uh, in front of you, if you're gonna go back to what Kenji called the nosebleed level, <laughs> and sort of say, well, why is it, what's the substructure that allows that to happen? So I'm gonna give you two hypotheses to think about that. The first is that for most of human history, uh, we lived in a world of scarcity. And in a world of scarcity, you have to discipline yourself in order to make surplus, in order to make an income, in order to have savings. Call that the Protestant ethic, where your relationship to what you want is one of self-control, self-discipline. You control yourself so that you don't spend what you make, you don't drink as in prohibition, you put it in your savings account so you can retire, you can live a rational economic life. Right? So that, um, most of, in most of the history of the world, the law has protected that aspect of your personality, the part of your personality that was self-disciplining. Freud in Civilization and His Discontent says, civilization rests on the ability to repress yourself, repress what you want. Of course, sexuality is at the core of what all of us always want, so you repress your sexuality, you have self-control over your sexuality, and most norms of civilization were about regulating sexuality for the reason you needed self-control in order to survive. And this uh, economy in the United States was built around the idea of, um, it was, it was supply-driven. You had to create surplus, you had to create capital, and you did that by exercising your will over other aspects of your personality. And the law respected that by respecting your property. Your property is the part of you that externalizes into action, into making something, into not doing what you want to do, but doing what you have to do in the law protecting, objectifying yourself. So what happens in the 1930s and the 1940s? We become a Keynesian society. We become a society that lives on consumption, not on production. Our economy is driven by the fact that we have to buy a lot of things. We are now a society in which the emblematic, um, the emblematic driver of the economy is the consumer who buys the iPhone and the TV and the car, not the person who has to discipline themselves to work. This is a huge shift in the drivers of the economy, and it's a huge shift in terms of what is essential about the person. We become now a society driven by advertising, driven by demand, driven by consumer preferences. And that means we turn Freud on his head. We have to stimulate desire. We have to stimulate the ability to buy in order to make our economy run. And you began to see the constitutional law of the nation change after World War II in response to that, when sexuality suddenly becomes an aspect of the person which constitutional law wanted to respect. You saw that in the protection for contraception. This is the 50th anniversary of Griswold versus Connecticut, the first case to protect contraception. Um, the court protected abortion. Um, that is to say, the ability to have sex for women without consequences. And what you see now in the, in the arena of sexual orientation, this is an outcropping of the same thing because the law begins to see as an essential aspect of the person what makes us all similar to each other is not merely the self-discipline that produces property, not merely the reason that produces a polity, but the sexuality that produces love, the kind of love that was at the center of the movie um, last night, um, and that we can identify with when uh, we think about marriage in constitutional terms in the way Kenji was talking about as the right to marry, 
the right to have a relationship, the right to express ourselves, become who we are in a relationship of love. I would say probably the idea that your sexuality was key to your identity and as a legal matter would have been incomprehensible to somebody in the United States in the 1880s. But for us, it's an entirely comprehensible concept because of these deep changes in structure. So that's one way to understand the difference. A second way to understand this social transformation goes to social mobilization. We, how does the law change? The law doesn't change because the text of the Constitution changes, you know, the originalist, it's all fixed, it's all in the text. These words are quite open-ended. Nobody really knows what they mean. How do we know what they mean? We know what they mean because the social landscape of contestation, the struggles over what they mean, happen in social life. And so we become in arguments. There are people who are agenda setters for public opinion, and that always happens in a form of conflict. In the women's rights movement, when uh, women said women are people too, the personal is political, they changed the agenda of public discussion that you see happening now. And so if we were, if the court in the decision that Linda was describing for you were to decide this case, not as a right to marriage, if it decides it as a right to marriage case, you know as a constitutional matter what the court is saying is you need to love to be a human being. That's what the court is. I mean, the most fundamental sociological observation would be that. It, the court could decide it a different way. The court could decide it the way that Kenji was talking about equal protection. Right? You can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. So if the courts decide that way, what would be the deep social meaning? The deep social meaning is there are social groups that set a social agenda by creating conflict in the public scene. And when the law changes, it responds uh, to the demands of those who are on the social scene. And if the court decides it on the equal protection ground, on the ground of you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, what they'll be saying is this group as an agent in society, the agent being the group, the group of persons with a certain sexual orientation, because of their political activism, have a right to be at the table and they can't be discriminated against. So if the court decides it that way, it will be about the forms of social contest and the success of certain forms of social content. Now, there's another way the court could decide it, and my prediction to you is right now that they won't. When the first decision that ever um, uh, on the same-sex marriage front uh, struck down virtually, in effect, um, a, a, a marriage uh, statute in Hawaii, that permitted a marriage between a man and women, man and a woman only, did it on the basis of sex discrimination. It said, this is a law that discriminates on the basis of sex. And if you think about that logically, what I'm about to show you is that logic is not the lifeblood of the law. If you think about it logically, what does a law do that says you can only marry someone if you have a man and a woman? It, it, the, the whole operation of the law turns on the basis of the sex of the partners. Notice. It does not turn on the basis of the sexual orientation of the parties because gays can marry, lesbians can marry, they just can't marry the person they want to marry. That's a different point. The law itself on its face doesn't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. Its effect is sexual orientation. What it literally does is discriminate on the basis of sex, the sex of the two people standing under the chuppah or standing in front of the pulpit or like that. And the court in Hawaii decided it that way. That decision was thermonuclear. 
That's a much more radical way of deciding the case than saying you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or you can't discriminate uh, or marriage has to be open to all. Why is that? Because that's saying you cannot define gender roles. There is no role for a man. There is no role for a woman. If the court decides it that way, that goes back to the discussion last night about being queer. That way of deciding says um, it affects everybody because there's no way in which society will uphold your particular role as a man or your particular role as a woman. That is the deepest way of penetrating into the social fabric and changing it at its roots. Because most of us, most people have a gender identity built into them. And here the court is saying no gender identity at all. There is a division in the LGBT community about whether you don't, in the, in the proposed legislation, ENDA, you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or you can't discriminate on the basis of a gender role. The latter is a much more radical and has much less support, first of all, because it affects everybody, and second of all, because it's a queer position. It's a position that says none of us really have a gender, a gender, gender which the law has to respect. So my prediction is the court won't say that when it decides. Whatever it says, it won't say that. And that's because, as a social matter, none of us are ready for that proposition. We're not in a society yet which has commitment to that proposition. We are in a society which says everyone, has, everyone should have someone to love. And we understand what that means, and we understand why that's universal, and we understand why that's the essence of the human essence of the human for constitutional purposes. And we are in a society where we can say certain groups have made claims on the public. Those are just claims, and we should recognize those claims. But we're not in a position to say, I have no gender. That's a, that's a very different sort of thing. Now, if, if the analysis I'm giving you is correct, it means you always have to look at the relationship between the formal law, the law which the court announces in the courtroom, and how it actually plays out in real life. In real life, what happens to that law? The court likes to think of itself as having the last word, but it doesn't. The court says something, and the rest of us react to what the court says and say, no, I'm not going to abide by that, or you know, I'm going to find a way around that. Think of abortion. You know, the court decides the abortion, and it's been the subject of controversy ever since. In uh, John Stewart's book, uh, first book, um, you know, it's a history of America, and he says, you know, 1973, the court decides Roe versus Wade and settles once and for all the question of abortion. So what's going to happen here? You see already the forms of the backlash that it's going to take. And I'm not talking about the flat-out civil disobedience of Roy Moore, which Linda was talking about in Alabama. I'm, uh, I'm talking about RIFRA. I am talking now about religious exemptions. The mobilization on the right against um, uh, forms of non-discrimination is, it's against my religious conscience. So you see these cases arising all over the country. In New Mexico, we had a case where a baker said, it's against my religious conscience to have to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. This is someone who sells cakes to Satanists and sells cakes to Judaism. Can't say, sell a cake to a same-sex wedding. Or uh, there will be you know, Mrs. Murphy's boarding house, and she says, I, it's against my religious convictions, and the law should recognize my religious conscience. And you're going to see a mobilization on the basis of religious conscience. You already see it in terms of the negotiations for ENDA in Congress, that they want this religious exemption, which will, in effect, 
turn the tables and say, you've passed a law of non-discrimination, but are you against freedom of religious conscience? Are you not going to let me, are you going to force me to do something that violates what my God tells me to do? And it's going to play out totally over that range. And we're going to have struggles about the relationship between religious conscience and non-discrimination. That's the form in which this backlash is going to take. And it's going to be one, one hell of a sleigh ride. Yeah, because we've got a Supreme Court now, as you know, from the Hobby Lobby case uh, last June that is um, exquisitely sensitive to religious claims. Uh, the claim in Hobby Lobby was extremely attenuated. You know, the business owner who wasn't going to, you know, force his employees to use contraception, tell his employees to use contraception, simply was asked to adhere to a nationwide policy that had been promulgated under the Affordable Care Act to include contraception uh, in the health benefit package. And the court was really very um, sensitive to, to, that, to that claim. I'll just add one uh, facet to both Robert's tale of this amazing social transformation and to the uh, potential backlash narrative to maybe distinguishes uh, the abortion case from uh, what we might expect to happen. I mean, one aspect of the social mobilization around gay rights, of course, is that uh, people came out as gay men and lesbians, and the straight world um, had to take notice of their colleagues and neighbors and family members and so on. And uh, the wonderful uh, Pam Carlin, a law professor at Stanford, said famously um, six or seven years ago that in her lifetime, uh, gay rights have come out of the closet and abortion has gone back into the closet. So even though uh, it's estimated that about a third of American women will have an abortion during their lifetime, uh, nobody talks about it. And so that aspect that has enabled the gay rights movement to propel itself um, is absent in the abortion context. I remember you know, discussing um, the abortion issue in uh, a class I was teaching at Yale a few years ago, and uh, a young man, one of the students said, uh, well, I know lots of gay people, but I've never met anybody who's had an abortion. I said, really? <laughs> you know, but he was being completely uh, sincere. So I think that's, um, that's a very important part of this, uh, of this story. And, you know, the, the 17 years between Bowers against Hardwick in 1986 at the Supreme Court and Lawrence against Texas, which uh, strongly in high moral terms repudiates Bowers in 2003. So what happened in the 17 years? I mean, the court really is not ever at a leading edge of social change. It, it consolidates uh, social change, and one thing that had changed at the court was there were lots of out gay people uh, who were <coughs> the law clerks, uh, the holding also very high positions in the court administration, and so on. And um, Lewis Powell, who was the key swing vote in Bowers, and after much internal angst, uh, voted against the gay rights claim in Bowers had famously said to a sort of closeted gay law clerk who everybody in the court knew or assumed was gay except for Justice Powell, said to him, uh, I've never met a homosexual. 
Okay. 2003, when Bowers was pending, nobody in the building of the Supreme Court could possibly have said such a thing. So um, that's the change. Yeah, and I can't resist adding there that that poor law clerk got so pilloried after not coming out to the justice because everyone uh, was literally gay. People were refusing them to let him into their homes, and he was just a complete pariah because he hadn't had the guts to come forward. And there's a great uh, literary critic now, unfortunately, passed away um, named Eve Sedgwick, who does a beautiful reading of this against the Purim story, where she said, uh. what was the fantasy there, right? Uh, so, you know, many of you will know the Purim story, uh, where the idea is that, uh, I'm going to mangle the names, but King Ahasuerus uh, says that he's going to commit genocide against the Jews. Unbeknownst to him, his wife, Queen Esther, is a Jew. At the 11th hour, her advisor Mordecai comes to her and says, you have to reveal yourself. She does. And Cedric puts it very well. She says, uh, he's finally able to see uh, the humanity of an unknown people in the lineaments of a beloved face. So the intimate triumphs the, over the Holocaustal there. Um, as an aside, he just orders a Holocaust against a different group of people, <laughs> right? Uh, but the Jews are spared. Uh, and so the idea, Cedric says, is that if this clerk had only come out, um, that this whole thing would have been transformational. And maybe it would have been, but maybe it would not have been. And she goes through the catalog of reasons why it might not have been, that yeah. you know, the justice might have had a really aversive homophobic, or the justice may actually have known more than he let on, uh, because the actual exchange, according to John Jeffries, was the clerk went up to the line and said, the, the right to be with the person whom I love would be more important to me than the right to vote. And the justice said back to him, that may be true, but that it doesn't mean that it's in the Constitution. And then he went off and he cast his vote. Yeah. But then uh, on a more optimistic note, and I see the mic, so then we can uh, open it up to questions, to, to Robert's superb um, link between This Is Not Over. Um, um, Michelangelo Signorile is a book called It's Not Over uh, that's also coming out in April that I would highly recommend, thinking about all the backlash that we can expect. But on a slightly more sanguine note, I want to say that we can think about this against the frame of Roe, but we can also think about it against the frame of Loving versus Virginia. So which is it going to be? Right? Loving versus Virginia is a 1967 case that said that bans on interracial marriage were unconstitutional. At the time when Loving was decided, interracial marriage was much more controversial than same-sex marriage is today. It took until 19, the 1990s for nationwide polls to show over 50% support for interracial marriages. Right? We're already there with same-sex marriages. Right? So a more optimistic note would be to say this is going to be much more like interracial marriage, that religious opposition is going to be met with, yes, you have your religious liberty, we're not going to define at all, and there would be insuperable objections based on the free exercise clause if we even tried to say that we're going to define how a church defines a marriage, that we're going to invade churches and tell them how to conduct their ceremonies or to tell them how they can marry people, right? But when you enter into the public sphere, there is no religious right to discriminate. And so that if you are going to be a cake baker, like you can decide whether to bake wedding cakes or not, but you can't decide to whom you will sell those wedding cakes, right? Particularly when, as you said in this uh, tester case, uh, Robert wasn't kidding, actually. There was a tester who called 
as a bakery in Oregon, so maybe we're thinking about different bakeries, but the, the, who called this bakery and said, you know, I just had a, a friend who made this breakthrough, you know, in um, stem cell technology. So can you make these two clone cakes that are identical to each other? <laughs> yeah. And the baker said something along the lines of, oh, that's very cute, what size, right? And so, and then the, the tester went on to say, well, I have this person who, the tester meaning the person who's trying to test like how far these religious objections really go, and said, you know, I had a friend who just went through a divorce for having a, a party to celebrate her divorce and her newfound freedom, will you bake a cake for that? Why, well, yes, of course I will, right? And so eventually it turned out that the only thing that this individual had an objection to was gay marriage. So to what extent are we going to allow, I mean, this is a Hobby Lobby question, right? Because to what extent are we going to allow people of faith themselves to define where their religious objections, I mean, it's not the state that gets to define what the meets and bounds of conscientious objection are, it's the people of faith themselves. And so when you multiply that by the 300 plus religions we have in this country, where does that really end? Because we have in Minnesota, Muslims who are dropping off people, cab drivers who are dropping off people at the side of the curb because they uh, can't touch alcohol. So if Robert, you got into a cab with some duty free and they only realized at mid-ride, they'd have to kick you out at the side of the road. You can bet that they were gonna lose their case. You know, they've lost their jobs, right? If they brought, they haven't brought suit yet, but if they brought suit, they would lose their case under RIFRA. So if you think about the slippery slopes there, I really do think that the scenario could be much more like the, this is gonna be more like interracial marriage in the long run than it's gonna be like abortion. Because in the abortion case, even a secular person can see the imagined harm on the other side, which is a human life. So I'm pro-choice, but I can understand that argument. In this context, I don't see the other argument on the other side, except for religious objection. So um, you may all know, I mean, abortion is very, uh, uh, one way to think about opposition to abortion is you're saving a human life. But if you look at the polling and you look at most people, if they're not absolutely sort of crazy on the subject, let's say, of course you, have, you can have an abortion for incest or for rape. So this is like what you saw in the movie last night, the woman who had AIDS because she got it from a transfusion, and Tom Hanks who has AIDS because he has uh, anonymous sex. So in the one case, AIDS, uh, the punishment of the person with AIDS is the punishment of the form of sexuality that got him the AIDS. And similar with abortion, if you're going to permit the abortion in the case of incest and the case of rape, what you're really saying is you're regulating the form of sexuality the promiscuity, whatever, that got you the sex. And that's very strong in the abortion context, this idea of proper and controlling female sexuality. And um, the, what you see, we, this is the Supreme Court now, you may know. It's just, I mean, it's, it sounds too bizarre to be true, but our Supreme Court has six Catholics and three Jews. No Protestants um, in this country. And um, there are five, uh, Catholics, at least, um, on this court, very, very protective of religious rights. And at least four of those are movement intellectuals of the right wing. And the right wing, at this moment, is using religious liberty as its hobby horse, so to speak, um, and as its hobby lobby to, to, um, to, uh, to find a legal expression of resistance, just like people who were wet during prohibition found ways to resist what the law said. 
And this court, in the Hobby Lobby case, in the recent case uh, with the man with the beard who was Muslim in the prison, has, is, is in the process of constructing a law which is unimaginably coarse. Basically, they, the, the, the court has said, if you say sincerely it's your religious belief, it's your religious belief, and we have to let you do it. Now, the court, <laughs> um, the court used to be against, when free exercise was like a lefty position, it was Justice Scalia, who in a, an opinion called um, uh, Smith, said, of course the Indians can't use, the Native Americans can't use peyote because there's a, there's a general law against peyote. And people don't get to pick and choose which laws they want. That was the right-wing position. That was Robbie George's position at, at Princeton, who's one of the theorists of this, in the 1980s. Now, religion has become the stalking horse for resistance to the hegemony of a form of toleration and non-discrimination. Suddenly, these very justices are turning around, and they're basically taking a legal position, which Kenji is right. There is no way in the world this position makes any sense. You have a law that's applied to you, you're a landlord, and you suddenly say, it's my religious conviction, I don't like these people, and the court has to respect it simply because you said it. And there's no doctrine, there's no, you know, we're talking high Protestantism here. I mean, we're not talking about a church that has rules. We're not talking about canon law. We're not talking about anything other than the fact you say it and you think it's religion. And it turns out your religion is very connected to the Republican Party. I mean, there's, you know, there's not a hair's width of difference between your religion and your politics, but you're saying it's religion. And this court has created the doctrinal apparatus where that actually trumps. Now, um, I, I don't think that's stable in the long run. I don't think any government could run like that in the long run. But you're going to see a lot of turbulence before it straightens out, would be my prediction, unfortunately. So we have to let people ask our questions. I'll just make one, uh, one final comment about this. Uh, it's very interesting that the uh, owners of the Hobby Lobby chain of stores actually included contraception in their employee health plan until it became... Uh, politically urgent to say, oh, no, we can't do that. And that was when the Obama administration said, you have to do that. All of a sudden, their religion prevented them from doing that. So I'll just leave that there. Um, sir. Hi, I'm Jim Pucinich, and I'm a docent here. Uh, I was fascinated by the idea that the court might decide this case based on love. I mean, I just can't imagine Scalia and Thomas and Alito dealing with something emotional like love. Can, can you explain we didn't, that? We didn't say they were going to be on that side. Well, I'm, I'm clear that I won't be, but, but what would be the rationale? To well, why do you have a right to marry? What does marriage give you as an institution? What's it connected to that would make it constitutionally fundamental? <laughs> practice, uh, the historical practice, I would say. Well, I, my guess would be that what makes it so fundamental, it's the institutional embodiment of your ability to have a meaningful uh, relationship with another that is ultimately founded on love and your ability to fulfill yourself in love. If you look at Kennedy's rhetoric in Windsor and in Lawrence and in what it means to have the institute to have an institution that actually recognizes and protects this kind of human intimacy and dependence and fidelity, he's rapturous about that. The word Which marriage is, is not anywhere in the Constitution. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Sir. Uh, my name is Norman Arnoff. I'm an enthusiastic member of this society. 
Um, I have an ob observation that we have to be sensitive to process integrity. And I'm going to put forth two interrelated questions. Uh, when does the Supreme Court cross the line in sustaining a right not textually supported in the U.S. Constitution and other federal and state laws? And two, can a better process be developed and formalized whereby Congress and or the uh, states confirm the Supreme Court's holding without needing a constitutional amendment? Well, I'll talk to the first one very briefly. So United States Supreme Court in 1954 decides a case called Brown versus Board of Education, which says states cannot discriminate in education. Right? You can't segregate whites and blacks. That corresponds to northern values at the time, not southern values. Um, and then a, a case immediately rises in the next year. What about segregation in the District of Columbia? The District of Columbia is not a state. There is no text in the Constitution which says that the federal government cannot discriminate on the basis of race or anything um, in territories like the District of Columbia. And so there is no textual grounding whatever to decide this case except to say when the District of Columbia was created and when the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment, which is what applies to the federal government, was ratified in 1791, it was a slave territory. Fourteenth Amendment doesn't apply to the federal government. Now, is that an abuse of interpretive power when there's no text to apply the value of non-discrimination to the District of Columbia? Is that how you would characterize such an Well, it does apply through the Fifth Amendment, the Due Process Clause. Yes, but the Due Process Clause is ratified in 1791. Not the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, ratified the in 1868. Fifth, the Fifth Amendment. The Fifth Amendment only is what applies to the federal government. In other words, he's saying, are you saying that in 1791 they predicted that there would be incorporation of the 14th Amendment against the District of Columbia and its school desegregation suit? No, no. text. There is, it is textually supported if you apply the due process clause in the Fifth Amendment. That's my view. All right. So let me just give you the assembly again. So it says in the Constitution, Congress shall have the power to make rules for the Army and the Navy. Does Congress have the power to make rules for the Air Force? And I would go you one, one uh, even closer to home. The right to marry is nowhere enumerated within the Constitution for heterosexuals. So are you saying that the federal government or the state government could deprive you in a heterosexual context of your marriage, even though the right to marry is nowhere enumerated in the Constitution? Well, my, my point of view is that we are lazy in having um, the Congress support the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court support the Congress. And there is a level of scrutiny in terms of talking about constitutional rights, uh, there's less scrutiny when Congress and the Supreme Court concur. Um, and we have to think in those terms um, when the Constitution is textually ambiguous. Okay, I'm going to give a chance over here. Um, you've talked about uh, how fast things have changed, and you've also talked about backlash. I was wondering about um, your views about Professor Klarman's 
a book uh, from Closet to the Altar, and he, he even there seems ambivalent about his own argument about how each time there were advances in the court or in state courts, uh, there was this immediate political backlash, which you know undermined maybe progress in this area. Um, and I guess he piggybacks that onto the argument about Brown and in the 50s. Um, so I, I was curious about your thoughts about his thesis in that book. Well, go ahead, Linda. If I understand Michael Klarman's argument about Brown, it actually, correct me if I'm wrong about this, it actually is that the, the white Southern backlash against integration and the scenes that the rest of the country saw of the hoses and the police dogs and so on is what mobilized the rest of the country to get behind the notion of civil rights and the Civil Rights Act and so on. So I, I, I think what Michael Clarman is arguing is that uh, backlash actually nationalized and transformed the notion of equal protection. Uh, backlash proved not to be a detriment, but actually something that instrumentally was very useful. So Clarman's uh, 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 early book said that the court got too far ahead in Brown, and it was only when the Southerners overreacted against Brown that they provoked Northern sentiment, and what really integrates is the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And there's some truth in the fact that the courts are unsuccessful in integrating the South until the 64 Act, and that is in part caused by the viciousness of the Southern repression of civil rights movement. And very early on, um, uh, uh, Clarman was looking at the backlash against Goodrich. Goodrich is the decision in Massachusetts in 2003, which allowed same-sex marriage. And almost immediately, what, 23, 24 states passed constitutional amendments, you might remember this, banning same-sex marriage as a result. And he was saying, courts shouldn't be out front. Courts cannot cause social change. That was his thesis um, early on, in the, right after Goodrich. And actually, he's turned out to be incorrect because courts put it on the agenda and there was struggle. There's always struggle. But it turns out the courts, partially for the reasons that Kenji's exploring in his book, um, uh, creates a form of identification and allows this thing to settle out in the other way. And Klarman has actually changed his position on, the, on whether courts can be out in front and cause change or not. Um, at the beginning, he was very much in, light of a, in the line of a Sh University of Chicago theorist named uh, Rosenberg, Jerry Rosenberg, who basically says courts should be out of the business of causing social change because all they do is provoke backlash. And it's a hollow hope. Yeah. A hollow hope. But I mean, it was a very erudite way of framing the question because I think you've read the, uh, From the Closet to the Altar, right? So in his most recent work, he hedges, right? And he says, this is all in flux, so I may not really, my thesis may not bear out in this context. And I think Robert's exactly right, which is to say that I don't think a thesis is going to be proven in this context. But you know, the the hedge, I suppose, if I were to be his lawyer for a second, would be to say that you know, when you have a court decision, the upcoming Obergefell decision, where you have 37 states and public opinion polls hovering around 60 percent, right? Then it may be that the court decision, you know, will not stimulate backlash only because all the stars are aligned behind it. So it depends on whether or not you think of the court decision as being this upcoming court decision, or whether you think of it, as Robert was saying, the 2003 Goodrich decision, right? But I think that, at least with regard to 
uh, Goodrich's decision, he's, his thesis has not been borne out. Oh. You know, he, he was at one point, I, I think this is right, going to write a kind of a global uh, take on courts and backlash, right. big project. And as I understand it, that project has been dropped. And I think one, one lesson to take from this conversation is that each case has its own dynamic. And uh, you can't necessarily transport what happened in one to another. And you know, the abortion case had a particular set of dynamics that ended up in political mobilization on the other side. And the same-sex marriage case we're seeing play out in you know, quite, a, quite a different narrative is, is unfolding. So in my view, the abortion case stays controversial because gender stays controversial. And the role of women stays controversial in a way that, paradoxically, same-sex orientation is going to not be controversial. That's my, that's my thesis. And, um, the role of women is so much more pervasively key to social structure generally and at the intersection of so many forms of social control in ways that sexual orientation is not. And that's why abortion follows a very different kind of logic, it seems to me, than sexual orientation. It's playing out right now uh, in the issue of the rights of pregnant women. There's a pending Supreme Court case called um, Young against United Parcel Service to be decided very shortly. So watch that space. Yeah, my guess is they don't come out for love. Uh -huh, right. <laughs> right. Uh, a year or two after Citizens United was decided, the New Yorker, I think it was Jeffrey Tubin, claimed that Justice Roberts had basically pulled a fast one by taking a case that was not really before them and putting it before them. And this week, uh, Adam Liptak in the Times quoted an assistant solicitor general in 1990 by saying that you can't bring a case before the Supreme Court just because you feel like it. And that was Justice Roberts today. Um, do you think that the question of standing, which evidently the plaintiffs in this case that's coming along do not possess, do you think the question of standing may be used uh, as an excuse or cited uh, in, when the decision comes down in June? Um, actually, I don't. If people know what, what the reference is, so the Affordable Care Act case that's now before the Supreme Court has these four very sketchy plaintiffs and, uh, uh, who are claiming that the Affordable Care Act uh, is um, inflicting them with the kind of harm that confers uh, standing in a federal court. Um, their standing was not contested initially, and now it's come out that really they don't have a claim because one could get veterans medical benefits and was about to get Medicare, and one doesn't have a fixed address, and so on and so on. Um, I think that's kind of a distraction, actually. Um, I mean, standing is a very interesting subject, and it's true that it seems to be, uh, there, there's a formal definition of it, but it seems to come out in the eye of the Supreme Court, because if you remember in the um, University of Texas affirmative action case of a couple of years ago, Abigail Fisher, the recruited plaintiff in that case, had already graduated from another university, so there was no way that uh, whatever the decision was could, quote, redress her harm, but <coughs> she was held to have standing. Um, so I think the court will get to the merits of this of this challenge to the Affordable Care Act. Um, 
a challenge which, by the way, has no merits, so I actually think that um, the government will prevail uh, in, that, in that case. And I'll, I'll just say this because you mentioned the Jeffrey Tubin narrative about um, the role of Chief Justice Roberts in Citizens United. I actually um, don't think that's the way it happened, but we can discuss that at some other venue. Right. Um, uh, sir. Hi, uh, my name is Daniel Arias. I was just, I just wanted to talk about how uh, earlier you spoke about how fast the, uh, the same-sex marriage movement is actually uh, progressing. Uh, I wanted to know what you guys think uh, motivated parts of society to be so progressive about this in comparison to other uh, movements like the civil rights movement. Great, so I think that's a fascinating question and deserves deep study because as you said, no civil rights movement you know, has come so far so fast in um, recent memory. So my explanation for this actually goes back to the logic of uh, um, Supreme Court formulation back in 1938 where the justices say that discrete and insular minorities deserve the court's protection. So I think what the court is referring to in that formulation is discrete meaning visible and insular meaning ghettoized in society. So I think that they're thinking about African Americans in that famous Caroline Products footnote as it's known. In 1980 there's an eminent uh, Yale legal constitutional scholar named Bruce Ackerman, who writes be an essay called Beyond Caroline Products in the Harvard Law Review, where he says, it's not discrete and insular minorities who need protection, it's anonymous and diffuse minorities who need protection. And the reason that he said that was that he said, if you are a discrete and insular minority, say you are a group of individuals like a racial minority, you can vote out somebody from your district. You have you know, lower search costs, you have lower mobilization costs, you can identify each other, it's harder for people to hide by passing or what have you, right? And so the real uh, people who are disenfranchised in society, he says, are anonymous and diffuse minorities like gay people or Jehovah's Witnesses or what have you because they're spread throughout society and they have a very hard time mobilizing. And a couple of years ago, I challenged this thesis by saying, this may be true, but it's deeply contextual, right? So it's only true in context. So that after a certain point when enough gay people started coming out of the closet, we know that through Gordon Allport's work in the contact hypothesis that as you rub elbows with people, prejudice against them goes down. Suddenly, um, anonymity and diffuseness became the greatest drivers of change within the gay rights movement. So far from being debilities, once we flipped over to the tipping point, our anonymity and our diffuseness were huge benefits insofar as anonymity meant that gay PV mechanisms never worked against us so that because we could pass. And so once it became safe to come out, people came out at the highest levels of academia, at the highest levels of politics, at the highest level of corporate America, think of Tim Cook recently, you know, at the highest levels of the military, you name it, right? So immediately we had a built-in advantage because individuals were very, very far along in their careers and established and had track record, right? Thank you. And then with regard to the diffuseness, sorry, the, yeah, the, no, the final okay. point that I'll make. I'm ready. Very long <laughs> answer to the same question. I'll try to keep this short. But with regard to diffuseness, we're distributed through all walks of life so that unlike you know, individuals who are minority communities, like I'm Asian American, you know, I have an Asian American family. Everybody in my family is Asian American, right? Uh, in my family of origin at least, right? Uh, but if you think about 
the way the LGBT movement works with its diffuseness, every LGBT individual is not born to gay parents, right? Rather, we tend to be diffuse in the sense of every extended family has a gay family member in it. And so if we actually move beyond the tipping point phase where, and I know unfortunately this still happens, but ho hopefully we're moving gradually beyond the phase where if you come out as gay to your family, they disown you. Rather, if you come out as gay to your family, you bring your whole family with you as a group of individuals yeah. who will fight alongside you for your equal treatment in society. And so anonymity and diffuseness in this context beyond, beyond the tipping point have become enormous weapons that I don't think that other historical civil rights movements like the racial civil rights movement, the feminist movement, or the, even the disability rights movements or other movements that you can think of have had uh, at their disposal. You know, it's interesting, the claim to, to a right to anonymity is now being put forward in courts by the anti-gay mobilized forces who are claiming that uh, if their participation in public referendums and fundraising and so on uh, is known, they'll, they'll be subject to harassment and they're claiming that open records laws of the various states where there have been these referendums uh, should not apply to them. It's a pretty fascinating flip. Hi, uh, my name's Calum Sproul. Um, I'm an alien engaged, so from a pragmatic point of view, I see a lot of value in this conversation, but I can't help but ask the question, why are we moving in this direction? Why are we just kicking the can down the road? And why are we privileging people that happen to be in love or happen to get married over single people? Why does being in love entitle people to extra privileges from the state? Great. Do you want to take this one? Or? Well, I'll, I'll, no, I'll, I'll start it, and then I, we just talked about homonormativity uh, last, last, yesterday, so that's why I was looking to Robert, so I wasn't meaning to evade the question. Um, I think that there are, are many, many uh, individuals who would stand up and cheer to hear you say that. So many eminent scholars and activists within the LGBT community, Nancy Polikoff would be a huge one uh, in there, uh, Melissa Murray, you know, uh, spectacular young superstar at, at, at Berkeley who, who say, look, you know, we shouldn't actually have laid marriage with so many benefits and entitlements and rather, uh, but rather have the, um, the concept of, of, of citizenship hold these entitlements rather than um, having marriage serve that function. And the reason I call this um, homonormativity, which is my colleague at NYU, Lisa Duggan's phase, she, uh, phrase, she's flipping this notion of heteronormativity, is because the notion is that if I were to flip the question to you and say, why would there be a insistence on keeping it this way, the idea would be we still believe that marriage is such a positive thing that we want to channel as pe many people as we want, uh, as we can, into it, right? But the problem with that is that you know, rights have a channeling function, right? So that if you look in the period before uh, the manumission of the slaves, before the slaves could get married, there are many, many plural forms of relationship, like jumping over a broomstick or, you know, effective forms of polyamory as people were taken from plantation to plantation. And all of those uh, relationships kind of withered on the vine once marriage became available because there was only one respectable way to be. And there was a, you know, uh, kind of rushing sound as people 
you know, ran across the altar to get married, and suddenly there was a scenario <coughs> of married and not married, and it didn't alter the status quo in the ways that you've been describing. Mm. So I guess my best response to you is to say that rights have a channeling function, but not having rights also has a channeling function, right? So the way, the place I've always stood on this is to say, yes, I want equal marriage rights, but I also don't want marriage to be the be all and the end all. I want marriage rights for gay people to be the beginning of a spectrum of relationship recognition similar to what France has, for example, where they have you know, marriage for same-sex couples and they have um, the Pax Civile, for example, which is this middle space of domestic partnership. So if you talk to Nancy Polikoff or you talk to Melissa Murray, one of the things that they hammer on the table for is to say we need those intermediate forms of relationship so that we're not binarizing between marriage where you get all the goodies and you know, uh, non-marriage where you get none of them, but rather you have other forms of relationship recognition and also rights that pertain to you as an individual, whether you're married or not. Given, given, okay, okay sorry, I have yeah. to cut you off so we have time for one more question. Hi, I'm Daniel Caragiulo. Um, at the beginning of the talk, you discussed sodomy <coughs> laws, and my question was, where does the government get the right to tell you what you can and cannot do with another person under mutual consent in privacy? Like, how can they, how can you be, con like, convicted or put on trial for sodomy if you do it in privacy with someone under consent? So the, I think you should flip your question. The question is, the government can do anything it wants with you except if it's forbidden from doing it in the Constitution or for some other law. Mm. So you have to start from the other premise. The premise being, this is the state. Welcome to the state. And if the state decides it wants to do something to you in private or in public, you need a reason to say you can't do that. Mm. And that's actually sort of the way it works. Thank you. Okay. So, Linda Greenhouse, Robert Post, Kenji Yoshino, we thank you so much for today and last night all together. And um, they will be back. We're all already planning our programs for next year. I want to thank everyone here for coming on this cold morning. I hope you enjoyed it. And I always like to ask how many members do we have in the audience with us today? Quite a few. We, we thank you all for being members. Your memberships help support all our programs. And we invite all of those, um, those of you who are not yet members, to join the family um, and to keep coming back. Just, just one note before we go, we have another Bonnie and Richard Reese lecture in um, Constitution and Law coming up on April. I believe it's, it's April 22nd with Akil Ridamar, who has a new book called The Law of the Land, very much about how geography influences decisions. And he will be speaking with Trevor Morrison, who is the dean of NYU Law School. So sign up for that, come back again, and have a great weekend. Thank you. <laughs>